Massive economic and social revolutions didn't used to come around very often. Things like the invention of government or the book were rare occurrences, and it was unlikely that you were going to live through one. Well, we've had four in the last hundred years. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second after this message from our sponsor, Lenovo. My story? It starts over 50 years ago with my father. My dad was a German immigrant who learned the art of violin making over half a century ago in Europe. His dream was always to open up his own store, his own shop, and to share the gift of music with others. My dream has always been to carry on my father's legacy, to spread his love of music, and to make music accessible to everyone. My name is Paul Preer, and my small business is Peter Preer & Sons Violins, a shop that's been running since 1965. But when you've been in business as long as we have, there are things you have to do to keep up with the times. Stay tuned to hear the rest of my story and to see what makes a difference for me in my small business. Four revolutions, really? Well, there might have been more, but let's focus on these four. The first one is a revolution in manufacturing, the tail end of the Industrial Revolution. The idea that we could make things, lots of things, complicated things, and that we could make them faster and cheaper and much better with each passing year. The second revolution was the revolution of the computer, the computer as calculator, as machine that could do math, the computer that could figure out how to get us to the moon and back, the computer that could control a robot and make it so that car was even more perfect. The third revolution is computer as network, the idea that that data over there can combine with this data over here into a shared database and let us know more than we ever knew before. This is the network of GPS, of email, and yes, God forbid, of Facebook. And the fourth revolution? The fourth revolution is the one that's going on right now that puts those three revolutions together and changes the very nature of our daily lives. This is the revolution of marketing. Marketing, the way we make things, bring them to market, tell people that they exist, share them with other people, and engage with them. Marketing, the act of changing the culture. If you're listening to this right after I came out, it's the middle of November 2018, and this week my new book, This Is Marketing, is coming out, and I wanted to dedicate this podcast to sharing some of the ideas that I go over in that book. I wrote the book because I felt it was time for someone to write down a summary of just how much things have changed in 20 years, but more important, to give us a compass for how we're going to go forward. Does it really matter how many Twitter followers you have? Does navigating social media count? as effective marketing, or is there something bigger at stake? Is marketing just about selling soap to housewives? I don't think so. We've seen the revolution in marketing change so much of what is going on in our lives. Not just what we consume and how we consume it, 
not just where we buy it and what we do with it after we're done with it, but who we vote for, what we care about, who we interact with, and yes, who we date. That marketing is in every corner of our world, more pervasive than religion was a thousand years ago. And it's up to us, the ones with a keyboard, the ones who are connected, to figure out what we want to do with it. Hence, this is marketing. So what are some of these ideas? The first one is this. Marketers make change happen. That's what we do. We change things. If you are not making a change, you're not doing marketing. You're just wasting time and money. Which means that marketers assert. They put something into the world with the assertion that it will change someone for the better, that it will engage with that person in a way that changes them, that what we get to do as marketers is make things better by making better things, that the most elegant way we have to contribute, to complain, to improve, is to show up with marketing, with an argument in the form of a service or a product or a vision and use that and the story of what we seek to do to impact other human beings and make change happen. And what are we changing? Often we're changing the culture. And what is the culture? The culture is people like us do things like this. We have to figure out who the people like us are because not everyone is people like us. And not all things are things like this. People like us, we listen to podcasts like this one, People like us don't eat meat. People like us live in this town, not that town. People like us root for this, not for that. People like us do things like this leads us to the critical idea that what we get to do as marketers, as people who are going to seek to make a change happen, is we address the smallest viable audience. Not the biggest. That's the old school marketer. Not, how do I make average stuff for average people? That doesn't work anymore. Instead, it's, what's the smallest number, the fewest people that I could find and dance with and educate, that I could change, that I could do business with? Enough that if there were that many people who eagerly engaged, I'd be fine and I'd get to do it again. Because if we begin with the smallest viable audience... We will not compromise our product or service. We will not dumb it down or average it out. That instead, what we get to do is serve people who want to be served, see people who want to be seen, and connect with people who want to be connected. Once we've identified the smallest viable audience, it's easy to answer the questions, who's it for, what's it for, who exactly Am I seeking to change? What change precisely am I seeking to make? And Michael Schrag turned me on to this in a little book he wrote a couple years ago. The idea that Harley-Davidson, for example, turns outsiders into insiders. Not all outsiders, just a few. People who seek the connection that Harley is able to offer. Who's it for and what's it for? When we go to the market... Most people don't want to hear from us. Most people are skeptical. People who care about us will be quick 
to encourage us to back off because they don't want us to get hurt. They don't want us to overextend. And so the next idea is that we must shun the non-believers, the people who don't get it. If the people we seek to serve don't get it, if the people we seek to serve want nothing to do with us, we should learn a critical lesson. We should improve. But the non-believers, the ones we never sought to serve in the first place, it's not for you. Thanks for listening, but it's not for you. But when we show up in the marketplace, even if we have permission, even if we have people who are eager to hear from us, change is difficult. Change is difficult because change is risky. Because no one evolved successfully to be a neophiliac. That the best way to play it safe for a very long time has been to play it safe. It's only recently that people have been able to thrive by saying, I'm looking for something new. I'm looking for something interesting. And it's those people. They're the ones who you get to serve first. But even those people, they feel tension. Tension before they say yes. If I buy this new style of shoes, what will happen if my friends make fun of me? If I spend hours trying to learn this new software, how will I feel? if it doesn't work very well. If I pay this money to engage in this project and it doesn't work out, what will that do to the way I feel about money? How will I be able to afford my rent next month? All of these issues float around as we try to make a decision about whether to go forward or not. So it's tempting in the old model of marketing, of average stuff for average people, to get rid of the tension, to make it super easy. But in fact, that's not going to help you. That we have to embrace the tension and in fact cause the tension because that's what we're doing when we show up and offering to make change. We're inflicting tension on the people we seek to serve. And the tension is where you are now is fine, but where I will take you, where we will go together is better. And the only way to get you to better is to get you to leave fine behind. And I can't make that risk-free and tension-free. So I'm going to embrace that tension and say, yeah, you might not come along. And if you don't come along, you might be disappointed. You might be disappointed because if you don't come along, it won't be here for you tomorrow. That you'll be stuck with the status quo you have now. But over here, over here, if you hurry, if you're interested you are welcome to seek out something better. So what we have to do when we show up with the tension is look for the fear. What exactly is this person afraid of? What is their narrative? And because we are willing to treat different people differently, because we can talk to people based on their psychographics, not their demographics, something that was impossible 30 years ago, We can talk to people in a way they want to be talked to and talk to them about their fear. Next, who eats lunch first? What a weird question. And it's the question that every sentient animal asks every day. Who eats lunch first? Who gets to drink at the oasis and who gets edged out? Who is the runt of the litter? Who is the one who has power and authority And who is the one who has to do what they're told? Who eats lunch first? 
is our shorthand for status. Some people want to move up. They want to sit at the head of the table. They want to be seen as the smart one, the loud one, the insightful one, the insider. They want to be seen as the person with the fancy plane or the ability to say yes or no. Many people don't want their status to change. It's safer that way. I don't want to move up. I don't want to move down. And some people, surprisingly, want to move down. They want to be in situations where they are clearly the least powerful person in the room because they think it lets them off the hook. So this thing you're bringing, this change that you are offering to us, this revolutionary shift, what will it do to my status? And how will I see myself before and after I engage with you? A couple more. People like us do things like this, plus software equals the network effect. The network effect is the fact that the first person with a fax machine could not use it because you can't send a fax to yourself. So the only thing to do once you had a fax machine was tell other people, people you worked with, to go get a fax machine so you could send them a fax. And so the idea spreads. And what we're seeing is that most of the significant changes to our culture are being made by products and services and ideas that have a network effect, that beg to be shared, that are remarkable, that are worth talking about. And the last one I'll cover in this rapid survey is the idea that it's not your tribe, but you can lead some people. That tribes are natural arrangements of human beings. We want to clump together in these groups of people who share an interest in a leader and a costume and a way of being and a goal. But these tribes, these tribes that range from the red hat ladies in hundreds of cities around the world to the red hat guys who go and compete with the Ironman triathlon in Hawaii, even though they know they're going to lose, they go because the other red hat guys are there. And so what we get to do is show up and connect people, to commit to where they are going, to intentionally create a culture, to choose to be the impresario who is making a change that makes people feel more seen, that helps us weave together meaning, because that is what we so often seek. So those are just some of the ideas that I've been wrestling with and I've been talking about on this podcast and in other places for a while. But what has become clear to me is that this revolution is even more widespread than we expected. That back when I worked at Spinnaker in 1983, I spent about $4 million on advertising. And I looked up a chart back then, and it said that we, my little tiny company of which I was the 30th employee, were one of the top 250 advertisers in the country. So even if it was off by a factor of 10, that's insane. That's almost nobody. Today, of course, everyone is a marketer. Anyone who's on social media, anyone who's looking for clicks, anyone who's got a change they're trying to make in the world, anyone who's put out a book on the Kindle, anyone who wants to influence the conversation at work, in their community, on the school board, everyone's a marketer. Everyone is being judged. Everyone is judging. Everyone is connected, and some people want to be more connected. Everyone is figuring out in the chaos of our modern, 
connected society. What's next? Why do we want to go that way? What's wrong with where we are? How do we make things better? Who do I know? What do people think of me? What do I think of them? These are marketing choices. And we are not victims anymore, not if we don't want to be. Instead, we can be creators. People who are able to say, here, I made this. People who seek to make things better by making better things. Doing work that matters for people who care. This is the chance of a lifetime because these revolutions don't happen very often. It's a crazy moment that four of them are colliding right here and right now. That you can be a manufacturer without owning a factory. That you can work in computers without even having a powerful computer. The network's in the cloud. That you can organize a tribe without ever meeting them. That you can narrate, that you can communicate, that you can contribute as often as you want. And the cost is nothing but our guts, our sweat, our tears, our care. That it's open. But too many of us think that if we're not Procter & Gamble, we're not invited. It turns out that bottom-up is a bad way to describe it. We don't live in a top-down culture. We live in a bottom-up culture. But bottom implies somehow lesser. No, it's not lesser. It's all of us. All of us choosing to speak up and act in a way that weaves together a culture and a change we want to see in the world. Go. Go make a ruckus because this is our turn. Thanks for listening. In a minute, we'll be back with your answers to questions from last time. But first, here's a message from our sponsor, Lenovo. Having been around since 1965, there's a lot of things about the business that have changed, and a lot that haven't. While our mission of sharing a love of music and the craft of violin making with our community is still the same, the way we approach that mission has evolved. And Lenovo has been a huge part of that process. We needed an easier way to manage orders and client databases, to keep track of inventory, uh, to monitor social media, and, and to connect with our community. And with Lenovo, we've been able to do all that and more. Lenovo has truly been a huge difference maker for us by helping streamline our efficiency, uh, productivity, and to just improve our business functions. Having a technology partner I can depend on means I can get back to focusing on what I care about most, our customers. To see how Lenovo can help support your small business, visit www.lenovo.com SMB. I'm Paul Preer, and this is my Difference Maker story. Hey, Seth. It's Maria. Hey, Seth. My name's Kyle. Greetings, Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. Hi, Seth. This is Rebecca from Wheaton, Illinois. I just listened to your Wedding Industrial Complex episode and was pleased to hear you emphasize inclusion as a positive value when planning weddings. But the language you used excluded non-heterosexual couples. Additionally, you generalized brides as the decision makers without even a brief acknowledgement of the role gender expectations play in turning the ratchet. Can you talk a little bit more about what goes into your decision to use traditional language? 
over progressive language when analyzing scenarios like this? Thanks. I really appreciate the work you're doing. Thanks for this. And yes, of course, you're right. I was careless in my language. Brides are not the only people who are driving the decisions in weddings. And not all weddings involve a man and a woman. Because I was focusing on the marketing side of the equation, the industrial complex, I missed all of that. Thanks for pointing it out. My apologies. Hi, Seth. It's Colin. In your recent interview on The Tim Ferriss Show, you refer to yourself as a teacher. Your thinking on education was what first drew me into your work. And the more I've engaged with you, the more it seems that you lump teaching and marketing together. Can you talk a little bit about how you hold those two concepts together and what you've seen and learned as a teacher through the marketing seminar? Thanks. The key distinction between most marketers and most teachers comes with the word mandatory. That if you are in a classroom where it is required by law or by the need to get a degree for the student to show up, it feels like mandatory education. And if you're a marketer in the marketplace of attention, in the marketplace of ideas, trying to earn volunteers to go along, it can feel a little different than a classroom. But in fact, when each of them is working right, they are very similar. They're similar because when people volunteer, when they volunteer their attention, their energy, their focus, their commitment to move forward, then the teaching goes way better. Then the marketing is a lot easier. So my thesis is that the future of marketing and the future of teaching are aligned in the sense that we have to seek out and earn volunteers, people who are going where we are going. And I think that calling, not to do it at people or to do it because people are required, but to engage in a voluntary exchange of information and energy, to together weave together forward motion, I think that's a pretty cool calling. Hi, Seth. This is Vivian Carrasco. I was in the marketing seminar one and four, and I'm struggling with status roles. And this is marketing on page 140. You end the chapter with, the people we seek to serve have a noise in their head that's different than your noise. If we are marketers who are working on affiliation, does that mean that the tension we create isn't always affiliation? It might be dominance? Can you say more, please? Thanks, Vivian. Your question captures so many of the concepts in This is Marketing, and I'll try to decode it a bit at a time. The first is the idea of noise in our heads. Everyone is walking around with fears and dreams, with anxiousness, with confidence. And what we have is the opportunity to meet them where they are, not to require them to adopt our view of the world, but to extend ourselves to approach their view of the world. And one of the things that we can do as we dance with the people we seek to serve is to understand if in any given moment they seek dominance or affiliation. Dominance and status roles come from Keith Johnstone in a book he wrote 50 years ago called Impro. And it's the concept that some people in some situations measure who's up and who's down, who eats lunch first. 
what is their status compared to those around them. And we have to acknowledge that their measure of status is their measure of status, that we don't get to insist that they want our measure. It's up to them. And affiliation and dominance, they're different. Affiliation is, who am I next to? Who is embracing me? Who sees me? Who wants me around? Whereas dominance, as I just mentioned, is, who am I in charge of? Who is below me? Who is beating the people that I don't like? So these concepts all come together in a swirl. Status, affiliation, dominance, worldview. They're all part of the multi-level complexity that is actually marketing. Hi, this is Thomas from Belgium, and I have a question regarding the pricing of your product. So how do you determine the price of your product in comparison to the value you bring to your customer? And definitely if it's a new product that hasn't been launched before. Thank you. Pricing is sort of the holy grail of marketing. It seems so simple because it seems like it's about obtaining the money that we need to do our work. But it's not about that. It's where all of it comes together. The moment before we launch our product and we have to decide if we care enough about it, if we're proud enough of it to charge a fair price. And the moment when the consumer sees it and decides what bucket it belongs in and how they see themselves. It's about status and it's about fear and risk and connection. All of marketing, all of the layers come together in a simple conversation about whether it should cost $19 or $29. So I wish I had a compelling formula to share with you, but it's not a microeconomic supply and demand issue. It's an issue of the story we tell, the story we tell ourselves and the story we tell others. And so one of the reasons why I've laid out so many of these underlying principles in the book is because the nuance matters. That once you see clearly who you are serving and how you are serving them, the pricing gets a lot easier. Thanks for your questions. If you've got a question for next time, please visit akimbo.link and press the appropriate button. We love to hear from you. If you're interested in more information on the new book, including a video presentation, visit sethsblog TIM, which stands for This is Marketing. Go make a ruckus. What are people saying about the Alt-MBA? I just, I needed something, something more, a way to level myself up and find other, find a connection and really be challenged. Maybe I operated for 10 years in my life and this is what was my best space. But then in Alt-MBA, you learned what was your best on Monday? It's going to be better on Tuesday night. And you're going to do it in a space where everyone cares about you so much that they're not going to let you off the hook. Alt-MBA, in fact, is not a course. It's a workshop. It's one month in which a professional coming from all over the globe can work with 100 other professionals that will make you a better leader. Not enough time. We know it's not enough time. Do it anyway. So many people want to self-edit. They want to say, oh, I have writer's block, all these excuses, basically. And so this is just an exercise in getting out of your own way and also collaboration. It's more about how you think, what you're willing to offer yourself and, and the group. I have a clearer vision with my company and who I'm trying to build it for. Really having a lot of skills to speak more confidently about who I wanted to be and where I wanted to go. Find out more at altmba.com.